So I worked for so many years in campus ministry that you almost had to get used to when you're dealing with the secular mind for people to be outright antagonistic towards Christian truth claims. You know, it's one thing for somebody to be ambivalent about your beliefs. It's another for them to, you know, oppose them to your face. But have you ever noticed that sometimes it kind of feels like the Bible's not helping? I mean, really, there's some certain passages that when you look at from a certain angle, you feel like they make no sense whatsoever to somebody outside of the faith. <coughs> well, Christopher Hitchens was a British journalist who, prior to his death, was kind of a favorite Christian gadfly. Uh, and made quite a name for himself by taking shots at basic Christian doctrines. And one of my favorite quotes by him is when he mocks all of the blood and gore in the Bible. This is what he says. He says, once again, we have a father demonstrating love by subjecting a son to death by torture. But this time, the father is not trying to impress God. He is God, and he's trying to impress humans. Ask yourself this question. How moral is the following? I'm told of the human sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago without my wishing it and in circumstances so ghastly had I been present and in possession of any influence, I would have been duty-bound to try and stop it. But in consequence of this murder, my own manifold sins are forgiven me and I may hope to enjoy everlasting life. <laughs> I could go on and on with people with cynical takes on the Bible just like that. But there really are times when you encounter the Bible and you realize we can almost cringe at trying to imagine how in the world you're going to make sense of it. It seems so bizarre. Well, welcome to our passage this morning. Uh, it is no exaggeration to say that this is one of the hardest to understand passages in the entire book of Genesis to wrap your mind around. Because you've you got to wrap your mind around what Moses is saying. He seems to be saying that there are these powerful beings who... When they mated with beautiful women, produced a whole race of Nephilim, a Hebrew word which literally just means giants. And the result was that God had a decision to destroy the world with a flood. Now, how does that strike you? Well, for those of us in the business of teaching the Bible to skeptics, it's one of those times where you look at it and you think, how in the world am I ever going to explain this? Well, have no fear, because not only do I think that this passage is understandable, I also think that it has something very powerful to say to us in the way that a Christian looks at the world around them. And I think there are a few things that will renovate your spiritual life more than getting in touch with the way the Bible looks at the supernatural world. Okay, so three points to unpack this morning. What does the story say, first of all? Secondly, what does it mean? And then finally, what in the world should this be saying to me? Look, first of all, what does the story say? Let's just dive in verses 1 and 2. Humankind is multiplying, and that included beautiful daughters. And these daughters were especially desirable to the sons of God. And here, right here, is where the confusion starts. Who exactly are the sons of God? Well, there are some people who think that these sons of God are the human descendants of Cain. This is the lineage that clearly has been spoiled by Cain's rebellion against God. And between chapter 4 and chapter 6, you get this just outline of the rebellion, which is in every practical way horrible. So perhaps these sons of God are the descendants of Genesis 4 through 6. But in my opinion, that doesn't actually account for how it is the Bible authors looked at this passage themselves. For instance, if you fast forward to Peter's second little letter in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, Peter talks about fallen angels in the context of talking about the flood when he says this, 
He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Then in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Even the tiny letter of Jude, you know, the next to the last book in the Bible, mentions in verse 6 this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What's the point? The point is that it seems to be that the New Testament writers believe that these sons of God mentioned in the story of just preceding the flood narrative were actually heavenly messengers. They were angels. They were people that dwelt in heaven. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this is where it's about to get weird. And my answer to you is you have no idea. Okay? Because the passage is saying not only do these heavenly beings exist, but that somehow they procreated with human women. That's what verse 4 is saying when it says, the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. Well, what could that possibly be about? Well, there's actually some room for interpretation here. There are some commentators who believe that indeed, somehow these angelic beings took on human form <clears throat> with sexual parts and mated with human women. Now, the reason why lots of people don't like this interpretation is because of what Jesus says to the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12. You remember this conversation? Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And so they come up to challenge Jesus on a certain theological question. And Jesus is like, you're completely wrong. You don't understand what the new heavens and the new earth is like. And then he says this, for when humans rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So the inference is, is that angels are unable to mate, so that must mean that Genesis 6 can't mean that angels had sex with humans. I do have a small quibble with that objection, though, by the way, from Mark 12, because the objection to the text doesn't say that the angels are unable to procreate. It's just that they don't do so. Perhaps they're choosing to remain faithful to their God-given station. Okay, but there's other interpreters that think these spiritual beings are actually demons, fallen angels, who have somehow possessed the bodies of men and then had sex with them to produce this offspring. I do think there's some merit to this explanation because there are some places in the Bible that seem to suggest that these demons crave human bodies. Remember when Jesus cast out a bunch of demons out of the man of the Gerasenes uh, 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 who called themselves uh, Legion, for we are many, they say. It's in Mark chapter 5, verse 10, right before Jesus cast them out, the demons beg for Jesus to send them into a group of pigs. What's the point? Well, the point is, is that there we have people who show demons craving what God has created in human forms. And Moses sees this as being a colossal, a monstrous culmination of degradation that has been going on ever since Adam and Eve have sinned. Here's the reason why we know that. There's a really fascinating little uh, biblical hyperlink, if you will, that exists right there in verse 2. Because there's a Hebrew verb pairing of three verbs which say that the angels saw, they desired, and they took. Well, that's the exact same three-verb word pairing that's used to describe what Adam and Eve did when they took the, free, the, the fruit of the tree of the garden. It says that she saw, she desired, and she took. 
There's no way that's an accident, okay? Because what Moses is doing is he has bookended between Adam and Eve's fall that something now has culminated in something monstrously evil. Okay, so what is that evil? Well, think about this. Remember, after the fall of mankind, we saw that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. And God placed in the garden an angel with a flaming sword to keep the humans out. Which, if you think about it, is pretty amazing. Before the fall of man, heaven and earth were actually one place. God's space was man's space. They were together in one place. God walked among them. He could converse with them. But when sin entered and the banishment from the garden, heaven and earth are separated. That's what happens. And the story of the whole Bible is how God is trying to put these worlds back together again. Think about it. Just now, as we recited the Lord's Prayer, what did we say? We said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul will go on to say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, that the purpose of God's plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in him, that is Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. It's very interesting. That word unite in Ephesians 1 could better be, it's got a little prefix in front of it, that means it could be better translated to reunite. See what Paul is saying. In his mind, he understands that heaven and earth used to be the same place. They've been split, but when Jesus has come along, they're going to reunite. And this, by the way, is why the whole Bible ends in Revelation 21.3 with God saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In other words, God has this means. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. God has this means by which he is going to save the world. And we said that that salvation was going to come through the means of the woman's womb. That is, generation after generation of sexual bonds between men and women in marriage was going to produce the ultimate Savior. This is the way, as the Mandalorian says. So if you were a demon, think about this. Think about how, how, how uh, diabolical this really is. If you were a demon, what better way to thwart God's ultimate plan than to corrupt that seed with an unholy, demonic union between rebellious, angelic beings and the daughters of men? That's what's going on. And you were warned to buckle up, okay? Second point is simply this. So what in the world could a story like this mean, right? I think it means two things. I think, first of all, it means that there exists a spiritual realm that is populated by both loyal and rebellious angelic beings. Secondly, it also means that God is in the business of stamping out that evil. Let's take both of those. The first one. You have to grasp at the very beginning that the Bible's view of the world is that there is another realm. And in this other realm, there are all kinds of angelic beings which exist. Look, you really need to pick up a copy of our own Dr. Greg Davidson's books on Genesis. He's written quite a few of them and has done a ton of great research on Genesis. And while Greg and I may quibble over certain small points here and there, it would be a very rich resource for anybody wanting to dive into the book of Genesis more deeply. But Greg was the one who helped me understand that a Jewish person had a very interesting theological view of the world. Now, mind you, you and I in our day would rather stick with our scientific, perhaps even geological view of the world, which has its place, of course. 
But in Greg's book, Friend of Faith, Friend of Science, he outlines exactly what the world was thought to look like from that Jewish worldview. Let me quote Greg here. He says, The general understanding of the nations throughout the ancient Near East, from Egypt to Babylon, depicted the cosmos in words and in art as a three-tiered system of solid sky, flat earth surrounded by seas, and a watery underworld supported by pillars. What's he saying? Saying, well, there was this world below where the dead would remain for a time. There was the visible world around us, which is what we dwell in. And then there was the heavens, which were constantly pictured as God's space. But don't get confused, because the heavens should not be thought of as the actual dwelling place of God, but rather an image for it. It always reminds me of the uh, 1960s Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. Gagarin, do you remember the story? Gagarin is the first one who actually uh, made it into space as a human being. But when he came down, later on, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev would say, well, Gagarin flew up into space, but he didn't see God there. Well, if you were a Jewish person, you would have furrowed your brow at that statement, not because you didn't believe that God wasn't there, but because you understood that the image of God being up there was theological rather than scientific. Think about this for a second. Why was it that ancient Near Eastern peoples would put temples on mountains? Well, simply stated, because the ancients believed that when you moved up, you moved into God's space. Well, why would that suggest that to them? Oh, I don't know. When you look out into the sky, there's an endlessness to it, is there not? Which probably spoke to these people about the God who they worshipped as ultimate. Look, for our purposes this morning, I'm simply saying that the Bible authors believe that there was another realm coexistent with ours, populated by heavenly beings and creatures. And that place, just because it is invisible, doesn't mean that it's immaterial. That is, that place has substance and it has form. It's invisible to us, sure, to those who inhabit it, but it's still quite real. Psalm 82 that we read for the call to worship this morning calls it a divine council, this gathering of the citizens of heaven. And it says this in verses 1 and 2, God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods, that's little g God, by the way, for a purpose. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Do you see the picture? There you have God holding court with all of the rebellious hosts along with the faithful ones as well, and judging the rebellious for the havoc that they are creating among the humans, predicting their demise even. When you go home this afternoon, take a look at Job chapters 1 and 2, and you can see the divine counsel in action as God confers with Satan about what he will and will not allow to happen to his servant Job in that particular courtroom. But my first thing I want you to walk away with is that the Bible pictures that there is a space It's not way up there. It's among us. It's his space among us. Second thing, though, from this story that I think we can draw out is how that story is traced throughout the Old Testament. I think this is fascinating. Because in verse 4, we have this prediction regarding the Nephilim, which, again, is just a word for giants. These creatures for the Jewish people came to represent to the Jewish people the very embodiment of evil itself. Even after the flood, these unholy unions persisted. 
which is the reason why as soon as Joshua sends spies into the land, what are the spies the most afraid of? The giants. And every single city that they conquer, they always go after something known as the sons of Anak. Well, guess who those are? They're the Nephilim. Till finally, when you get King David, who shows up as the ultimate sort of vivid example of how God's going to advance his kingdom, who is the first foe that David goes after and defeats? Goliath, the giant. Do you see the point? This was a picture of what God was going to do. He was going to stamp out the unholy seed and thwart the devil's efforts to interfere with his plan to save the world. That's what gets traced throughout that. Okay, <laughs> so why in the world should this matter to any of us? Because it sounds so weird. You're not paying attention if you're not asking the question, what could this possibly have to do with my life? Well, I just want to make one simple point of application in closing, and it's simply this. The Bible views the world differently than we do. Let me state it baldly. The Bible thinks that there is an unseen realm all around us, which is the space of God's dwelling. It is not imaginary, and it is invisible to our eyes only because we are blinded to it by our own sin and rebellion. That's the only reason. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham has said this. He said, if the modern reader finds this story of angels mating with human women incredible, that reflects a materialism that tends to doubt the existence of spirits at all, whether they're good or evil. <laughs> but to those who believe that the creator could unite himself to human nature in the virgin's womb, in the story of the incarnation, they will not find this story intrinsically beyond belief. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the reason why we have no acknowledgement of this unseen realm is because we're too materialistic. And by that, I don't mean that we buy too much stuff. That's a whole different discussion. I mean that we look around us and we think that all that there is is what I can see, taste, touch, smell, and feel. That's not the case. One scholar put it this way. He said, I want to be wary of interpreting the Bible in a way that's designed to make it make total sense to me as a Western person because I assume that my Western assumptions are sometimes wrong. That's my point today. We lose something when we, when, we, when we refuse to see that there is an unseen realm out there. When we fail to acknowledge the supernatural, we have robbed us of something essential as Christian people. What are those things? I think there are at least four things. Four things that happen when we begin to embrace the supernatural in our lives again. Let me take one first. Without a view of the supernatural, you really don't know what to do with evil. Think about this for a second. I'm talking about radical evil. Notice the inertia that inevitably flows from the direction of a TV news coverage when yet another school shooting happens. A monster enters a school in Sandy Hook, New Jersey, and guns down children, children, one by one. And we just can't wait to know why he did this. We search through his background. We, we interview his family and his neighbors and his friends. Did you see any signs? Can you, can, could you have seen this coming, we ask. Now look, I have no interest in diminishing the reality of mental illness as it takes people over and causes them to be capable of horrendous evil. But there is something entirely more sane, I would say, 
in saying that there actually is saying a malevolent force that is at work in the universe that is itself exerting influence over men and it desires nothing more than the destruction of the host. That's what I believe is happening. Are you really going to say that the reason why these things happen is simply because of bad upbringing or sociological forces or chemical imbalances in the brain? The biblical mind begs to differ. It says the radical evil exists because there is an unseen world of image of God-hating beings who desire their destruction. Are we really ready to chalk things up like the Holocaust to nothing more than environmental factors in Hitler's life? No. There is nothing more sane, I would argue, than to say the devil is at work and his minions love to see that kind of fear and that kind of death. Secondly, not only do we get a sense of evil, but secondly, without the supernatural, I don't think we know how to see God at work in the world. Now, like I'm granting the fact that there's a warped and perverted version of what we might call name it and claim it spirituality. You know, the kind of thing that attributes you know, everything from like a, a, an increase in your last paycheck bonus to your favorite parking place at Kroger to, you know, the Lord's blessing and intervention. I'm not talking about those kinds of silly things. But I do wonder if we haven't somehow pushed God so far out that he's completely absent from his ability to work in the world. I mean, think about it. When was the last time someone came to your mind? You know how this happens. They simply came to your mind and you thought to yourself, I should reach out to them. And in so doing, you suddenly found out that indeed they did have something they needed to talk about. They needed to hear from you. I can tell you this happens to me all the time. It's close to every Sunday. And I often wonder, who it is that's praying right now? Because you have dragged me up out of a lot of dark places in my head before getting up here on Sunday mornings. And I can tell you it is tangible. It is tangible to me. But why are we oftentimes so hesitant to attribute that to God's intervention on our behalf? This is the only way in which we can see God at work in us if we get a sense that there really is a supernatural world. Thirdly, I realize that for some of you, it's really kind of a problem of proximity. I mean, seriously, Les, what good does it do me to believe that there's a world that I can't see and that I can't access in any way? Well, but wait a minute, that's not true. Because the Bible says that the unseen world is entirely accessible to you. How? Through prayer. Never thought about this, did you? Prayer is the means by which believing people communicate with the unseen realm. Now look, I promise you, I will be the first to stress how important it is to have that access to that world completely informed by the Bible's description of who I'm actually speaking to. Absolutely. So much so that we actually prefer here in our prayers that we do at public worship to simply parrot what the Psalms have instructed us to pray. But look, don't ever say that the spiritual realm is outside of your experience because you experience it every time you go to the Lord in prayer. That's the means. Fourth and finally, I think the, the, the purging of the supernatural from Western imagination is one of the reasons why we treat death the way that we do especially for those of us that are closer to it than others, because we wonder, we struggle with what honestly happens when we die. Really, what exactly happens? And for so many people I've spoken to, the idea that we somehow whiff out of existence, 
where, you know, uh, on the other side of our deaths is just terrifying on the face of it, is it not? But again, why do we assume that that unseen realm, because it's spiritual in nature and described as spiritual, is somehow immaterial? That's my question. What if it's quite substantive, just so far beyond our imagination that we don't get to see it? Here's my question. What if at the moment of our deaths, the, the experience is one of immediate and certain clarity for those who know the Lord? We see the spiritual realm. We see the heavenly host. We see everyone gathered around. What if there really is a place, very much like you and I are in a place right now, but totally different as well, where we will gather, where we'll worship. Sure, outside of time, outside of our present limitations of what we call space. But we know that when we head to that place, there will be something there that's full of joy. What if that's the experience? What if this is what led Paul when he talked about departing? Remember in Philippians where he says it would be better for me to depart so that I could be what? With the Lord. The essence of the death of a believing person who enters into the unseen realm is to be there with the Lord. Because in that place we find that there's almost been a parallel experience of the storyline of the Bible that has happened in the heavenly places. Don't believe me? What about Colossians chapter 2? When Paul looks and says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And that's where Western Reformed Christians stop. We don't read the next line. Because the next line says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them. What? Jesus has somehow been carrying on a war in heaven where at the cross he put them to an open shame. All of the things that continue to wreak havoc, which is why Psalm 82 is predicting their demise because Psalm 82 sees Jesus coming. And for us on this side of the grave who are looking to see with a lot of unknown about what death is like, what that passage means for us is at the moment of one's death, in the moment of one's eyes opening, we see the face of a friend. We see the face of someone with whom we have known. We see the face of someone with whom we have built a relationship. So yeah, I think that when we see on the other side of death, the the, the, the and supernatural realm, there's a mighty encouragement for us. But the challenge for us today is simply this. Who is going to have, a, have the courage to see the world through new eyes? That's the challenge of this passage. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, you have to give us those eyes because sin and fear and rebellion have clouded it all. So we pray that with your spirit, you would help us to see with the ways in which other people don't. Yes, we engage our imaginations, yes, but please let it be informed by what the Word says. Help our imaginations not to be vain. Help them not to be discarded from what your Word says, but that we might see with real eyes what the world is really like, because that's where we're all heading if we know you. And Father, for that soul this morning who fears that much more greatly, would you send them to your Son, that they might find all that that means about being dead and trespasses and being made alive together with him, all of those things. May they find that out and find joy and hope in you. Would you do that? Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.